The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with Telegraph and QBE, a brand new rugby podcast. I'm Brian Moore and joining me in the studio today is the Telegraph's excellent rugby news correspondent, Gavin Mayers. Good evening, Gavin. Good evening, Brian. Joining the show today, we'll be hearing from James Simpson Daniel, Richard Hibbard, Paul Cook and Alex Brune. Plus hearing from the team behind the team, but uh, more about that later. We'll also have top international rugby referee, Nigel Owens, will join us and answer any of your questions from the weekend action, which you can ask through uh, the week via the hashtag FullContact. Every week you can join us on Facebook Live at 6pm. Just search for The Telegraph Sport and you can listen to the whole show live on The Telegraph website. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you'll never miss an episode and please leave a review. Right, on with the show. Gav, lots to talk about as there always is. Uh, Let's start with a premiership. Thumping win for Leicester against Bristol. Is there any... What do you think about Bristol's chances of staying up? Uh, it's looking increasingly difficult, Brian. I think um, you know, we've already mentioned Sale have had a great win today against Wasps and that, that's really taken them well clear now of the safety zone. And I think we're seeing results going against Bristol and uh, it's just seeming like they're beginning to run out of time and possibly now already looking to sort of think about trying to get promotion again from the championship next year. This is difficult. And one of the reasons why I mooted this, uh, and it was a partial, not a full ring-fencing of the Premiership, is the situation de facto is this. In the Championship, there are only two or three teams that have the wherewithal and the facilities to come up. And there are only two or three teams that actually want to come yeah. up, yeah. whatever they say. Yeah. And when you have a promotion and relegation every year... It turns the battle to get up and the battle to stay up from the Premiership into a one-year, you know, all-or-nothing fest where if you get into trouble or if you want to get up, the temptation is not to play the players you've brought through your academy who are not seasoned. You go and get people who are seasoned internationals or club players, and they're usually from outside the country. Yeah. And I just thought, think... If you gave a window, I don't know, every two years or three years, four, whatever the period is, it would allow the teams that do want to come up to build successively to the year when they make the big push. And similarly, for the sides in the Premiership, they would know the big test came in the third year, but that would give them an opportunity to develop their style, to develop players who they brought up who they need to give experience to. And I just think it would be fair all round. That way, you're not cutting off the ambitious clubs, but you're making it a more orderly, you know, trans- transference in and out of what what is the Premiership. Yeah, and, I'm, and the, I guess the sort of one of the most damning statistics is the, what has happened to London Welsh this year. A, a club that has come up and spent money to try and stay up have gone down again, and are now no more. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the key dangers. It's the constant battle between the 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 constitution of the game. Promotion and great relegation, the pyramid system that is the foundation stone of English rugby. Also, the the drama that relegation brings to a season and keeps uh, interest at the bottom as well as the top of the table. But there are a lot, there is a lot of expense and a lot of wasted um, time and effort and investment and bricks and mortar and players' uh, careers effectively going up and down and it makes it difficult. But 
you know it's at the minute it's it is it is I, I think it's constantly being looked at and I could see it emerging at some stage where at least moves towards a playoff system where there's yeah um you, you two-legged player off and w- one team has a chance to go up but things will be sort of effectively weighted in the side that, that that's in the premiership that season so it, it's a difficult question bro well who knows what they were I, yeah i would be against ring fencing completely for the reasons i've said but i just think that um is a halfway house that, that would work when you look at the results this weekend um the Sale Sharks win was, well, it's the Solimono show, yeah. <laughs> so, so we're told. So eye-catching, yes. He scored a hat-trick today, and uh, I think Steve Diamond has sort of confirmed afterwards that he's going to qualify for England in a matter of weeks, which uh, will give, uh, uh, no doubt, uh, cause some excitement at Twickenham. Eddie Jones has already sort of got so many resources. His players coming back have been injured, and if Solomon and I... Uh, qualifies in a matter of weeks then he could come into consideration for the summer tour as well and just shows you what options that Jones has as he tries to develop the squad towards the World Cup Well we'll talk uh, more about the Six Nations and going forward in a second in this but at the end of the day I think the residence rules are too lax but whilst they are what they are and everyone has to abide by them, England are no worse or better than any other country in taking players who, have, let's say, have slightly more tenuous um, links with the country. Um, is it three years at the moment? I, mean, I, just, I, say, I say it should be five because yeah. that takes out a World Cup. Yeah, I think, and I think the RFU now have gone on the record to say they want five years as well. Um, there's, a, there's a World Rugby Council in May where it's going to be on the table again. They tried to change the rules at the end of the World Cup in 2015 Um it didn't get anywhere, and I think now, since Augustine Pichot's been uh, appointed to vice chair, it's one of his absolute um, central planks of his his sort of um, tenure, and he wants to drive this through. And I think now you're seeing the RFU coming on the record and saying, "We want five years." And there was a suggestion from me and Richie, the RFU chief executive, that if it doesn't, if it's not implemented. The RFU could self-impose a five-year rule and that would change the dynamics completely of the player drain from the Pacific Islands because the RFU, as we know, the richest union in world rugby, if they say no to players uh, who who think about coming here to qualify in three years, it will alter the dynamic completely. Well, we always take um, questions from uh, from listeners and I've got uh, several here. The, um, let's have a look. The first one about scrums. Let's get this out of the way. From John Brown. What can be done to make scrums quicker, better and less about forcing penalties? Um, it's, it's an interesting one. I, th- I think the scrummaging uh, uh, engagement has improved. I don't know what you think, Brian, but the, it, it has it has improved. But there's still the time that it takes to set scrums and, and getting the ball away. It's still uh, an issue. You know what? I know that referees have been told by coaches this is essential and they focus so much on every single facet of the engagement process. You know what? It doesn't matter. What matters is after the engagement. If they stopped sides pushing early, which is illegal, not supposed to do, then this front-loading and winning the engagement would no longer be a feature. They'd have to time the shove and it'd be a lot more stable. If they made them put the ball in relatively... I'm not even saying to the slide rule straight... 
even, you know, basically sort of straight, that you had to hook it. And thereby, if you didn't go forward, the ball wouldn't go back in your side. Yeah. Then you'd have more stability because to hook the ball, the team that is putting the ball in has to have a scrum stable. Yeah. So at least one side wants it stable and referees have a better idea as who's at fault when it isn't. It's so simple. It works at every other level. <laughs> it used to work at international level <laughs> until elite referees decided for whatever reason they weren't given in instructions to do this, to just ignore it. I mean, I saw several feeds in the last, um, well, in the, in the, in the England-Wales game that went straight to number eight, and that was both sides. And, and if you want to get rid of the rule, get rid of get law, sorry, the law, yeah. if you want to get rid of the law, get rid of it. Yeah. But, you know, I, 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 it is basically those two laws that are already on the statute book. If those are properly enforced, you'd solve as many problems as is possible. Just a question for you, Brian. How did you, when you were playing international rugby, when you played against France and they employed, they didn't strike for the ball, they sort of employed three props. How yeah. did you find that changed the dynamic of the scrum for England? Well, I mean, it was a lot more weight, but with with, with a cheat like Probin, who was, ex, you know, par excellence, it meant that if you got them low, yeah. you know, they couldn't strike the ball. And quite often the ball would just hover around. And we used to take regularly two or three against the head against France yeah. because they'd either kick it through or they wouldn't be able to hook it and you'd hook it and so on. It always caused a fight, but yeah. there you go. So it started around then and it just, you know, it's just been getting worse. Was, was it less stable though? Did you find it less stable against France particularly? No, no, not, not particularly because we wanted it stable on our ball. Yeah. And you know, you all work towards that. Anyway, enough about scrums because <laughs> if, we, if we go on, it'll take the whole of the 20 minutes on Facebook Live, which I don't want. This is an interesting question from um, Simon uh, Ronconio. Do you blood an experimental side against Italy and risk key players out for four weeks or press on with a winning formula? Um, well, the most important uh, <laughs> question to consider is what is Eddie Jones going to do? And I, I think he will um, He will make several changes, Brian, and I think he's right to do so. I think It's the only chance he's got anyway, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and, and if we think of Eddie Jones's absolute priority is 2019 World Cup. He, he wants to win games, but he is thinking every match, how do I improve things, what do I look at? And I think Italy are Twickenham next Sunday. Well, England have never lost to Italy. Yeah, and and, and haven't, haven't looked like doing so, and there's no way this team can lose to this Italian side. I think I think we could see a new, a new front row. I think um, this could be the decision, and this will be one of the most fascinating stories of this week. It does Eddie Jones rest Dylan Hartley and the implications that has over the captaincy. Um, Jamie George has been knocking on the door. He's been playing a lot of rugby off the bench. Um, I think we saw Hartley coming off after 46 minutes against Wales. Um, interestingly, Marco Vinopola made his comeback against Gloucester. Um, well, I would think he will go straight into squad. Yes, he will go straight into squad. But I think he'll look at him, and I think um, it's an opportunity there. And I think... Kyle Sinclair, who we're probably both fans of, I think he's he's a kind of um, rough diamond that, that, that Eddie Jones likes. And a, and a, well, at some point, they've got to see whether uh, Sinclair can scrummage at international level. Yeah. Because when he started his career at Quinns, he did struggle, but he was young, uh, and it's a big learning process. In fact, in the front row, you carry on learning throughout your career. Italy will provide uh, a decent test in the front row because of all the things that they are or aren't, they still scrimmage well, yeah, um, and that will 
you're able to do that without really threatening the result. And if you have um, Dan Cole on the bench, if things go extraordinarily wrong, um, then you know he can come on and he can replace him. It, as a point, I wonder if he might reverse the um, in several positions who he's starting and who he's on the bench. You know, scrum half is one. Yeah. Both props. Um, hooker is another one. Because I tell you what, that would give you a perspective because all these players who come on and have made impacts, undoubtedly, they'll yeah. be very good finishers, subs, whatever you call them, yeah. they're still playing against tiring players. It is different starting a game when everyone's completely on the metal. And it would just be interesting because a lot of players assume because, say, for example, Jamie George has made a big thing, that he would do that from minute one. Might not be the case. Almost in several positions, I don't think it would be, but it'd be interesting to do that on this occasion. Absolutely. And I, I, fascinating, the back line, you look at the back line, um, Ben Teo, massive impact from the bench against France. Um, you know he, what? He, he, Someone made this point the other day. Per minute played, he's probably been, <laughs> uh, made the biggest contribution to the England cause. Even though it's not many yeah, minutes. Yeah. So that's I think I think Eddie Jones will want to see him. How does he cope with starting a test match? As you say, very different scenario. Where does he start though? Twelve or thirteen? I, I, well, I think, and it's just a thought for this week that he would look at playing Farrell at ten, Teo at twelve. And the reason why I say that is after the the victory over Wales, Jones talked about wanting to look at something different. He wants this England team to be able to play in different ways. Yeah. In different circumstances, that makes sense, more sense to me. And and if you look at that and think, right, I've seen these two together at the end of a match. Let's see how they start a match. You could then look at say Elliot Daly, who's who's a sort of has been the joker in the pack at the at minute. Thirteen at thirteen. I, I I think you would look at him, start him at thirteen. That then gives you the the opportunity to bring Anthony Watson at fullback. He's fit again. Jones really likes the look of him as a, as an alternative to Mike Brown. This is a great chance to to, to start him there. Well, the back, the back three is still not a settled unit, apart from Mike Brown, who has been an ever present. Yeah. But the wings have come in yeah. and out of favour. Yeah, I I would think this is the game he's got to play someone other than Mike Brown. Yeah, simply because if Mike Brown gets injured or loses form, yeah, then you want a replacement who has at least played some games there. Do do you go for a specialist or um, hybrid like Watson or Daly, maybe yeah. or Lazowski. Yeah, yeah. He's meant. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think for this one, I think Watson of all the alternatives he's looked at at fullback, I think Watson's probably the top of his his list. And the fact that he's fit again and has has missed the first two games, I think the pace and footballing skills that Watson gives you at fifteen is worth a look. Let's see if it works, and you can always change things quite quickly if it doesn't. My thought about playing Daly was that at fullback was that yeah. he's obviously a very he's a very good footballer. Yeah. Because he's played several positions and you yeah. need to to yeah. be that to do that. But also when you get into these kicking duels backwards and forwards, he has got a boot yeah. which will outgun most people. Yeah. And therefore your exit strategy, what they call it now, yeah. will be you know be lengthened, and not many teams are going to want to get into a battle with him because they're going to lose that. Yeah. So it gives you gives you that. D- Daly, it might you know. A year ago, Jones was talking about Dilly not not ready to start a test match. I think it's fascinating now. In the last year, he has grown into almost one of the most integral players in this squad. He, you know, yet he, still not nailed down. Still not nailed down for a Jones particular is, position. But Jones is looking at him across the back line, and the fact that he feels he has confidence 
to put them in at different positions and every time if we take the the match where he got sent off aside but every time he's played he's played well made a massive impact and I think by the end of this championship he could be one of England's players of the tournaments and I, and I, I now think he's he's not a bolter for the Lions I think he's now coming into strong contention for the Lions Well one of the things that Jones looks at uh, which is a different perspective from Northern Hemisphere and this is a not just an Australian thing but a uh, certainly Kiwi thing as well. Certainly in the backs, they view the ability to play in several positions as not as a, you know, not as an impediment, but an actual benefit. And they're quite willing to put players in different combinations according to need and yeah. circumstance. And that's something we don't do here. I mean, you know, people have, and I must admit, I, I do because of, you know, generational thing, reservations about playing players out, out of position. Yeah. So, yeah. to speak, but... The more they play in several positions, yeah. uh, the less they are out of position because they've got that experience. So he's looking at that. And he, look at, he made the comment about Lozowski that he was the find of the season. Now, if that's so, I can't understand why he wouldn't play him at some point, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely on his radar. He, he, I think he's one player that surprised him when he's bought him into the camp, just what he can do. Uh, and his sort of, his game persona, how he copes with pressures... He's physical as well. Yep. He's he's a player who sort of, um, you know, he was t he talked about learning his, his game in, in the, the the testing ground the championship yeah, at Leeds yeah. and and a, s a succession of number eights running at him trying to make him look silly and he thought well I'm gonna have to stand up to this and so I think again about like Mike Brown he likes the warrior spirit in him and uh, I think we will definitely see him whether it's from the bench possibly. But who knows? He could even he could even be a starting ten option as well. well I don't know um, the extent to which his club mate at fullback Alex Good is responsible for it. And Alex might well feel aggrieved, and yeah. you know he's got a reasonable case for that. But when I've watched Lozowski play at fullback, he's constantly talking to the fly half and the backs because he has a better perspective of a wider, yeah. uh, you know, where the attacking options are, where the defensive threads are, uh, and it's conspicuous. And more so than I've seen with other fullbacks, and that must be a very valuable contribution, I would think. If you're standing at ten, you know the defence, you know a few yards away, looks very different to when you've got that perspective of twenty metres yeah, yeah. or so. Oh, we used to see that with Cipriani as well when he went to fifteen. You know, you could he could pick lines, he could use his pace and, and skills there to come in. So no, it's I think overall they're trying to develop players who can play. In different roles and the skill set that, that that by adjusting to those different positions actually makes you a more rounded player and you know bringing in spatial awareness coaches kicking coaches it's all about sort of just trying to get that x factor that we've seen new zealand and australian backlines just have those multi-skilled uh, attributes to to play themselves out of a hole or to finish off opportunities in a sort of ruthless fashion so having said all this do you think there will be multiple changes, or it will be slightly conservative? Or it's it's. I think this could be multiple changes. I think I I just think with this game that he will be confident of winning it. So what does he want to get out of the match? And if he wants to get something out of the match, is to learn things about his players because you could start the same fifteen that beat Wales and win with a bonus point by half time. That's not what he wants. That not that that's not going to serve the squad. Or add anything to the knowledge of the players. Let let's go for a bold selection. Possibly Owen Farrell as captain. 
just change the atmosphere mm. preparation week because ultimately Brian if you think of a World Cup scenario if Dylan Hartley is your captain in 2019 and he gets injured the week before you're playing a semi-final yep. what happens then England need to have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D well we won't have long to wait when, when is the announcement uh, he will make the announcement officially on Thursday Oh, I could be Friday this week because it's Friday a, this week. a Sunday match. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we will see. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal <coughs> partner of the British and Irish Lions. Joining us now is James Simpson, Daniel, former Gloucester and uh, England. Uh, well, utility back, but mainly just very quick. Um, James, you were down at King's Home when Gloucester. Well, I thought that they were going to do their old trick of messing it up at the end, but they didn't, and they came out with a 31-23 win over the champions, Saracens. How did you see it? Um, very much the same way as you, really. I, I kind of sadly expected that, uh, that they weren't going to win that game. I thought that Saracens, off the back of losing to um, Worcester the week before, would bounce back. And actually, the first try that the Saracens scored was absolutely fantastic, you know, Slick handling, yeah. um, they link well together as a group, and, and and got the try. And I thought, oh goodness gracious, you know this could be a this could be a tricky afternoon for Gloucester. But I think I think the difference be- between Gloucester of previous to what Gloucester showed the other night is when they got that ten point gap, they actually um, showed a little bit more stability than they had previously. Um, obviously against Leicester in the season, they went about twenty odd points up and then threw the game away, and we've seen that too many times. I think the other night, what they did show is, okay, a little bit of control, a little bit of discipline, and let's get over the finishing line, and that's exactly what they did. What do you put that down to? Because this consistency point has been something that Gloucester fans have said to me over the years, has been driving them mad. And how you get that, well, it's a very difficult thing to, you know, to to actually encapsulate, but it has to come from somewhere. Do you think this is a sign of anything, or are we reading too much into that? Yeah, to be fair, I wouldn't get too carried away about it. All. Yeah, I'm a massive Gloucester All I am now is a Gloucester fan, yeah. you know, a guy that played for the club, loved the club, um, but equally I'm quite level-headed, and sometimes it might be seen that I'm being against the club, um, which I don't mean to be that, but there's no point in just being biased like a lot of the... You know, you tune into into radio sometimes, and mm. you know it's a Leicester versus whoever. You can tell the commentators are so biased towards their own club. I try not to be that way. I try and be fair, and I, I just feel that um, in Gloucester's um, well, not recent history, but you know, Gloucester this season have just been so inconsistent. The thing is, if Gloucester are a rubbish rugby team, I think people can accept that, and they almost turn around and go, "Fine, we're not a good team. We're rubbish." Um, what can we do to build on it? I think the frustration comes is the lack of consistency, mm. like you just touched on a second ago. One week we can beat the you know, the champions, and the next week we can lose. And don't get me wrong, yes, of course, Saracens are missing players, and we understand that. But one week we can beat the champions, the next week we can lose to the bottom side. And it's just, I, I, I think the frustration comes as a Gloucester supporter, which I am now, and all the people that stand in the shed and go to King's Home, because... There isn't that consistency. At least, um, whatever it was, five, six, seven years ago, we win every single home game, but we'd lose on the road, mm. and that was a different challenge. Whereas now, you know, you, you just have, when you're turning up, you have no idea what type of a performance is going to turn up, and that is a frustration 
for all involved. Let's look at the Premiership in a wider sense. Um, Newcastle 46, Northampton 31. Um, are you as surprised as me at that? Um, personally, you know, I'll say it very openly, I back Newcastle to win. Um, but then I checked the score at half time, and I checked the score at half time, and I thought, well, I've done my money again. You know, that's not the first time. Um, but then the second half performance sounded like they were absolutely fantastic. Um, Northampton are clearly a side struggling. They've got their own issues going on. Can I be brutally honest now? And I will be brutally honest. Um, I think it's, dare I say it, and I'll whisper it. Um, I think it's a poor Premiership this year. I think you've mm-hmm. got Saracens. I think you've got Wasps. Um, and yes, obviously Wasps lost today. You know, Sale, where, where, where did Sale go that performance from? I have no idea. But apart from those two sides and a bit of Exeter, you know, if you ask any Leicester supporter what they think of this current side, they'll probably say it's the worst side, the, the worst group, the worst squad they've had in the last 10 years. Yet they're sat in fifth. I mm. think they're fifth. Uh, you know, knocking the door of playoffs, and if, as you well know, you get into playoffs, you can win the league. That's wrong for me. You know, how how can that be the case? You know, this is a very poor Leicester side by their own standards, yet they could win the league, potentially, knocking the door. I think it's a weak premiership this year. And well, again, it, it might be quite bold to say that, but that is my view. There are always um, difficulties with England having so much call on so many players and I've thought about this a lot and instinctively I don't like the fact that you can finish top and not win the league but a lot of the teams that lose a lot of players will say it's the only fair way for us to balance the opportunity because we you know are significantly disadvantaged through these parts of the seasons and the playoffs is the way that we get our opportunity later on in the season when we've got everyone back you know to even things up. Ryan, I couldn't agree more with you. I'm, um, people might say, well, of course you're biased because you won the league by 14 points or whatever it was or 12 points, whatever it was, and we messed up on the one-off on the, on, on the final at Twickenham and we got pumped. And, of course, I want to say, I don't care about that. I think if you are... This is a league we're talking about. This is not the FA Cup. This is not a, a knockout cup um, situation, competition we're talking about. I personally feel if you are consistent the majority of the season you should be rewarded by having a cup or a trophy mm-hmm. whatever it might be and then yes if you want to do a, a, a playoff system or, or, or um, you know you might get the double by, by winning the league and then also winning the playoffs mm-hmm. I think you should be rewarded by at least getting something I remember the year that we won it and Dean was in Dean Ryan was in charge and we won it and we won it by whatever it was 11 or 12 or 13 points and after that cup after the final playoff game where we lost, we were back on that coach after, absolutely devastated. Mm. You'd have thought we'd have been relegated. We were that bad. But for the majority, of the, for the whole season, we were outstanding. But no, I think there's a lot of merit in that, actually. I think there's but, a lot but, of merit but, in but, that. But this is the whole point that we're trying to say. You know, forget the fact that I've been through that. All I'm trying to do is share my experience. I think you should be rewarded by being top at the end of the season. And if you do the double, let's call it the double, if you do the double, you mm-hmm. then get the bonus point, which might be the, the bonus trophy for pulling it off and doing the double. That's how I see it personally. James, it's Gavin Mayers here. Just just on the on the reality of, of the playoffs that we have for this season, the top two places get the home, um, home advantage in the playoffs. 
Wasp defeat today um, against Sale. Just how significant could that be? It I think keeps the, the, the deficit um, with Saracens down to six points. Yeah, great point. Um, it, 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 it's very significant. But at the end of the day, you know, I was commentating last week and, and I'm looking at this um, supposed backup um, Wasp side. And don't get me wrong, I have no idea about the front row and forward, so I'm not even going to get into that. <laughs> the back line alone, you've got Dan Robson, Cipriani, Gopeth at 13, Eastmond at 12, who I think, by the way, has, has been um, almost harshly treated with England yeah. because I think he's a very, very good player and he links well with Cipriani. Um, Wade on the wing, uh, I think it was was it Bassett, the other wing, and and and, and Curtly Bill on at fullback. It's phenomenal, Not bad. Isn't it? that, yeah. that, that's a backup. Uh, that's a backup side, by the way. Just just you know, yeah. that's a backup backline. Um, and, and the point that I'm uh, that I'm trying to make there is this is a ridiculously strong side, a ridiculously strong squad. Yes, these losing bonus points, winning bonus points, make a big difference. But come the final day, come the the, the you know the final challenge that if you want to call it the cup final about who wins the premiership yes it's significant but equally on anyone's day you know look at the look at the results we've had recently yeah. you had last week Worcester who people were saying could Worcester possibly get relegated they're turning over their champions Gloucester was sat in ninth or whatever it was turning over their champions you know the the, the league is fairly competitive even though I think it is a weaker league than it has been previously. I think when it comes to the actual final at the end of the season, you know, on on, on their day, I think you're probably going to be looking at someone like Saris versus Wasps, and both sides have the ability on a one-off day to 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 you know to lift mm. the the, uh, the cup. Any hope for Bristol? It's so tough. The results have gone against them. I think I, th- I think if you asked me this question a month ago. I'd be saying, you know what, Bristol could really get in a battle here because I know Carl Hogg quite well. Mm. And Carl said to me, our, our kids play on um, on a Sunday uh, for, the, for the local side. And, and I was chatting to him and he said, look, you know, I just think we're we're in trouble this season. We just haven't got the side, you know, the side that we need to stay up. And he was really, really um, pessimistic about the whole thing. Looking at the results where they've gone the last few weeks, Bristol... I, I just think that Bristol now, the last couple of weeks, as I said before, that's not a great Leicester side, and they have pumped them this weekend. Look at the look at last week; they got pumped at home by Harlequins, who haven't won. I don't think they've won many games at all on the road. Um, I feel that Bristol might just start to disappear uh, as far as challenging to stay up. Personally, uh, James into retirement. I think you. Who are you working for? Um, I work for um, a, a betting company called Fitstairs. We're not a high street bookmakers. Um, we're more, you know, we're looking for people like you, Brian, with <laughs> lots of money um, um, and, and bet occasionally as opposed to your £5 punters. Um, of all the vices I've got, thank God that isn't one. <laughs> thank God that's all I'll say. Which is probably sensible. Yeah. But no, look, it, basically, it keeps me out of the office. I get to go to sporting events. I was at Twickenham the other week. I'm on the race course a few times, and and it uh, it keeps my involvement in sport, which is basically my only talent. Okay, so, uh, okay. Well, let's put you on the spot. If you had to put the money on, yeah. or you're advising me to put the money on, the winner of the playoffs, who would it be? I love the X factor of um, of Wasp being able to do ridiculous things out of nothing. Curtly Beale, 
doing a reverse pass in his own 22 last week with five seconds on the clock, which was high risk. But I think that that Saracens, once they've got all their players back, that Saracens squeeze the life out of the opposition. I've got to say it's got to be Saracens. But, uh, but I'll whisper it so quietly, <laughs> and I hate having to say this, I think even money, the Lions, um, possibly to lose 3-0 in New Zealand, looks to me like it could be something that's appealing if you are against the Lions. Fair enough. We will see. Thank you very much, James. Cheers, Jack. Thanks, James. Well, now we're able to speak to someone who played in that uh, Gloucester win. It's the Gloucester and Wales hooker, Richard Hibbard. Good evening, Richard. Good evening, Brad. Um, I, like a lot of... Well, not Gloucester fans, I'm not a Gloucester fan particularly, but I speak to a lot of them. They were expecting the old Gloucester to come out and you to have a, a glorious defeat, but it didn't turn out that way. Why was that? <laughs> uh, yeah, we are frustrated at times, uh, I have to admit. Uh, I think we were disappointed with the week before, obviously going to Leicester, uh, uh, not even showing up. Uh, we let ourselves down that day, uh, and we needed a reaction this week. Uh, and uh, there's no better chance to get a reaction against a Saracens team. Uh, and the boys really showed up, fronted up, and uh, put an effort in. Richard, let's turn to Wales, because you're now no longer involved in the squad. You might have a slightly different perspective. On the one hand, you could say the performance against England was good for the majority of the game. On the other hand, I think critics could say, well, it was too uh, redolent of past Wales performances, certainly against Australia and other Southern Hemisphere teams where they've got nearly there but not done it. Which which do you think it is? Yeah, uh, yeah, it, uh, it does it does remind me of that. But I think what what we got to take away from it, that, that England team is in a massive habit of winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the last two games, uh, they've won both games, but they won ugly. Uh, it's, 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 it's the habit they got. And they kept squeezing Wales until the end. I thought it was a, a, a Real gutsy performance by Wales. So it was much better than the week before for, uh, against Italy. And I honestly thought we were going to win. Uh, I thought we were going to win uh, by a bit more, actually, <laughs> and a uh, close game. But uh, obviously, like I just said, England are in the habit of winning. Uh, Richard Galvin Mayer is here. Um, massive performance from from Falatau as well for Bath uh, this, this weekend. It just adds that intrigue about the, the back row. Oh, it does, yeah, because. Uh, you look at Ross against England. Uh, I think that may be one of the the only sort of uh, mistakes they did is yeah. take Ross off. And, he was phenomenal, uh, wasn't he? Yeah. He was fantastic in defence and attack. Uh, no one wanted to run into him in the end. Uh, so, but no, it, it's good. I, I love having two two players in a position in good form and really good players because all he does is just keep pushing the other fella, and you just get better and better. And with Ross and Toby. If they can just keep pushing uh, each other, Rose the oyster with them. Richard, just another little point about the preparation for this weekend's game. We've we've had a fallow week, um, as it, you know, when you were involved with Wales. The, just how important is that fallow week? And it just there's been some, um, well, it's not speculation, but the Premiership rugby are trying to get the Six Nations squeezed from seven to five weeks. And I see Dan Bigger has already said that he thinks it's just impossible to ask for the intensity to be, to be kept up for five weekends in a row. Just from your point of view, at the cold phrase of the front row, just how difficult would it be to, to do that? Oh, I think it would be extremely hard. I think, uh, you, 
the Premiership is, is extremely hard league as itself, and we got to play that week in, week out. When you step up in international tests, especially Six Nations, and the intensity is just is massive, the pace is massive. It just absolutely drains you physically. Uh, uh, what these these middle weeks do is not only let your body recover. Uh, yeah, it gives the squad boys who haven't played a bit of game time in the clubs. And it also gives you a, uh, a little mental rest. Yeah, you're not you're not constantly uh, tense, nervous about what's coming up. You almost got like a, a calm before another storm, and it, it really gives you focus, uh, and it's much needed. Well, you mentioned the mental thing, and I, I think people may un, un, you know, underestimate this because effectively you would be in camp for six weeks, wouldn't you? Roughly start yeah. to finish, yeah. and you might be allowed home for. A night or a you know half a day or something, but essentially it'd be like being on tour and in your own space, and that's very difficult to take for 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 prolonged periods. And some players react to that better than others. So you you and it would favour the bigger squads, I think, as well, but better squads. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, it is. It's a lot of time. Obviously, it's a lot of boys are family men. Uh, a lot of boys live different distances distance away. Obviously, being in camp, you're taken away from that. It's it's good selfishly rugby wise because uh, you only get to concentrate on rugby. Yeah, you, you do sort of miss your families. Mm. Uh, so it, it's 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 a, it is a tough one, and that's where that sort of met this week now they would get a bit more time at home. Obviously, there's no game the weekend, so they probably have the weekend off, and if that as uh, recharge you just as much as resting your body. Well, one of the things that will not be easy either given Scotland's um, form at the moment, is an away trip to Murrayfield. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a, uh, a great test. I think Scotland, uh, obviously, in the autumn, they were in fine form. Uh, they definitely brought it into the Six Nations. Uh, they seem like a different team. And, but my only concern now is uh, is losing Greg, the captain. Uh, and his, just his goal-kicking alone is a big loss for them. So I think, I think we we're good enough to do it. I think it's going to be tough. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a runaway game. It's definitely going to be close. I just think uh, it's, it's uh, our our kicking percentage. Our, uh, Lee, we got Lee and Biggs there who can just bang them over. I think they'll just keep the scoreboard ticking over. And Richard, do you, do you think the the Wales side um, that fronted up so well against England, have they deserved another go at Murrayfield or do you think Rob will make some changes? No, I think the boys will definitely put their hands up. They were asked a lot of questions. They got a little bit of slack from the week before not getting the balls by Italy. But I think they really showed up against England. And uh, and you know what winning teams take. is It's a consistent 15 normally. Uh, I say the, the teams who win stuff are the closest ones and get the 15 out every week. So they'll take that now and uh, get those combinations working again for Scotland. Well, Richard, um, good luck in the rest of the season with Gloucester and thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Richard. Good night. Cheers, buddy. Time to turn to the laws of the game. The infuriating laws at, at times, but not as infuriating if you've got someone like top international referee Nigel Owens to explain them to you, which we always have, because he's a good old chap. Nigel, good evening. Brian, good evening. How are you? Uh, okay, not um, nothing uh, egregious coming out uh, of this weekend. Um, so I just I tell you what, I, I just wanted to explore a little bit the world of the referee and the officials, 
Uh, in, in football, they're told to meet a long way away from the ground, they, they, you know, they're kept apart and so on. How is it the preparation in the days before for, for, for officials at Rugby Union? Um, well, in, in the internationals, on the day before the game, the coaches are allowed to meet you um, and then have a meeting with you. And it's all, it usually involves the coach and he's allowed to bring the, the captain with him. So it's usually the coach and the captain will come along. Some coaches won't take their options. Some will. And then they'll just discuss with you if you've got anything for them regarding the way that they play or anything that you picked up from the games you refereed them before or from the previous week that you have an area of concern or anything like that or any points they'd have to like to bring to your attention. Um, that usually entails, if they have a query about, look, the opposition do this, is this legal to do or whatever like that. And that happens on the Friday if they want to meet you. Um, it could happen on a Saturday before the game, but it usually tends on the Friday. Um, and then you'll see them then when you get to the changes before the game and when you do the front row and the boots check. And then after the internationals, in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Southern Hemisphere, there doesn't tend to be an aftermatch function. So you get back to the changing rooms and you won't see the players or the coaches then afterwards. Uh, whereas in the Northern Hemisphere, we'll always have a function afterwards. The players will sit down for food with the match officials, same room. And then during the Six Nations, there'll be an aftermatch function at a dinner. So then you're there for a few hours with them so they can come and ask you a question or, you know, if they've got any queries. Sometimes the coaches won't want to come any near, anywhere near you. If they're not happy with how the game's gone, other times they'll come and have a chat with you. Most of the times they'll come and have a sit-down and a chat with you and uh, a constructive way as well. So that's how it works in, 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 in rugby. Nigel, Gavin Mayer is here. Hi, Gavin. Hi, mate. Did, uh, the, the, this proposal to, to condense the Six Nations from seven to five weeks, just what sort of impact would that have from your perspective as a referee in terms of preparation and reviewing games and reviewing performances? Um, I'm not sure it would have any impact, to be honest, because when we get together for the World Cup, you're there for eight weeks, usually the week before the starts and then all the way up to the final, which is which is sort of a span of us of seven, eight weeks. And so we'd be quite used to that environment and maybe very different for, for a referee than a player, because obviously the player is the physical end of the game. And for the for the referee, um, and obviously you don't do as many, you don't referee as many games as the player. So the players, for example, would play a lot of them would play five five games of the six races, five weeks on the bounce. So for the referees, you usually referee one or two games and then run touch. So it's not as intense. Um, but from a refereeing point of perspective, it wouldn't make any difference. If something probably, you'd be sort of um, at that level week in, week out, which would probably be beneficial maybe from the officiating part of it. But it wouldn't really make much yeah. difference as a referee. Yeah. You know? As to the players would be intense week in, week out, uh, whereas a referee, you wouldn't be doing it week in, week out. That's interesting. Nigel, from a player's point of view, do you have any sympathies with some some of them saying that it would just be too too draining to have the intensity of five weekends in a row? Yeah, I, I, no, I, I you know, and this is my personal view, I, I think the Six Nations is great where it is now. You know, you get a block of two games and a weekend off and uh, it gives people the opportunity for us as referees um, and also players who are not involved in the match day squad to go back to the regions and have a game and then put them hand up for selection the following week and stuff as well. So I think the Six Nations is, is pretty good as it is now, I, I, to be honest with you, myself. So um, I would certainly understand where the players are coming from if they're playing week in, week out. And um, I, I just think the tournament is great, especially this year. It's probably been one of the, the best Six Nations tournaments as far as the quality of the games goes and the excitement as goes, especially for the first two weeks has been for a long, long time. Yeah. One of the things that came up on my social media feeds was the question of neck rolls. 
um, by which players are taken out of the breakdown by you know, grabbing them round the head because where the head goes, everything else follows. Um, is that just perception or have referees taken their eye off it? I don't think we've taken an eye off it. I think we, we've been quite strong when it's sort of leading into last, the last World Cup and then beyond. And I, and I don't think you'll see, uh, you don't seem to see as many neck rolls now as, as it was back because players are aware that if they do do it and get picked up, they, you know, they're going to get penalised and, and may well end up taking no further part in that game, depending on the seriousness of it. But uh, it's certainly, as player safety goes, it's certainly on our checklist uh, still, yes. And um, look, they are very, very difficult to see sometimes, yeah. Uh, very, very difficult to see. And in all honesty, um, as a referee, um, you tend not to see them. It's the TMO that will tend to pick them up on, mm. on, on a replay or when he has the opportunity to look at things in slow motion. It's very difficult for you and the judges to pick up uh, in game time. But uh, I, I, I'm certainly don't think it is a huge concern that is something that is happening in the game. You know, it's something I think we are aware of and we do deal with the ones that we see and it doesn't sort of jump out to me that it's been a big concern so far, I don't think. Well, one of the things that's always difficult to spot in a breakdown is whether a player is on or off his feet and we've discussed that before, but when players are in you know, a very powerful position with the legs spread and the body bent, they're very difficult to move. So what one one of the few ways that you can get rid of them is to go around the side and try to pick, you know, a leg up. At what point do you deem a player who was playing the ball from a defensive side legally is no longer able to do that? Is it when one foot comes off the floor? No. Um, if you're on your feet and, and you come in on your feet and you come in through the gate and the gate is determined by the bodies on the ground. So mm-hmm. if the player is a tackle on the ground and he's sort of facing the opposition trial and then the gate is very narrow if the width of the bodies are along the field then the gate is very wide so the players come in on their feet and come through the gate if you get your hands on that ball before is formed as long as you're on your feet you get your hands on that ball and you're allowed to continue to play that ball even after the ruck is formed because your hands are on it first of all mm-hmm. and the only time you have to let it go then is when you have then gone off your feet yourself but Usually, some before that happens, you would have probably won the right for the penalty against the guy holding on by the time you've gone off your feet. Sometimes you don't, and when you do go off your feet, then you have to let the ball go. But if your hands are on the ball before the ruck is formed, as long as you remain on your feet, you are allowed to continue to play that ball and keep your hand on the ball. If the ruck is formed before you get your hands on the ball, then obviously it'll be a penalty because your hands in the ruck. So what you're saying is, Provided you're in the legal position first, um, no action from the um, clearing side can make it illegal for you to carry on competing for the ball. Is that no, right? not if you are not if your hands are on it first. The only time it becomes illegal for you is if you get your hands on the ball, and as you get your hands on the ball, the ruck forms, and then you get driven off your feet before mm-hmm. winning or taking the ball off the ground, or before the guy on the floor is is penalised for holding on, then you have to release the ball. Otherwise, if you're on your feet and your hands are in there first, you are allowed to continue to play that ball until they drive you off. But what tends to happen then is before they've driven you off, you may have well run the right to, to win that penalty then. And Nigel, just, just on the issue of the the directive on the on the high tackles and trying to you know lower the tackle height, um, is there any concern or are you seeing any instances of the ball carrier dipping into tackles um, to almost win the penalty? I think I think 
first two things for me are garbage. One is obviously they were bought in for the player safety, which I think is hugely important, and was bought in for the right reason, and quite rightly so. Yeah. The second thing is I, I think. In all fairness here, I think the players need to take credit here that they really have seemed to make a conscious effort to get those tackles lower. And also, I think the referees have dealt with the issues that have come up, especially in the two rounds of the Six Nations. They dealt with them very well. So I think everybody's bought into what the intention was. Um, Now, moving on to your question then is, yeah, when... You do take into account, so if, if my tackle on you is legal, so I've come in to sort of tackle you around the sort of, let's say around the chest area and below, so I'm yeah. the bottom of your pecs and below, I've come in to target you there, and as I'm le- tack- tackling you legally, and then the player with the ball, you then dip a considerable amount into me, then obviously we take that into account, and that may well be, well, look, there's no foul play here, it's just a, okay. a clash yep. of heads or something. Um and if players do dip low, you do take that into account. If the player dips slightly, so there's only a couple of inches dip, your tackle is high anyway. So your tackle is around the top of the chest or around the shoulder height. It's not high yet, but you are on the border. Rest, and the yeah. player coming in to dips a couple of inches, then that is pretty much irrelevant because your tackle is pretty high to start with. So then you need to take the consequences. But if the dip of the ball carrier is you know, considerable dip, then yes, you you do take that into account. And if there's no offence, if there's no foul play, then it becomes a carrying-on situation. Play on. Nigel, where are you uh, next weekend? I am refereeing um, Ireland against France in in Paris, Brian. So, uh, in, sorry, in, in Dublin. Yeah. So um, I'm looking forward to that one. It should be it should be a good one. It'll be a tough one, that's for sure. It should one. It should be. Thank you for joining us again. Good luck. Pleasure. Cheers. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Nigel. Right, it's time to switch codes to the great game of Rugby League and, uh, well, in particular, the World Club Challenge to assist us with this is Paul Cook, Rugby League legend for Hull FC and KR, now coach with Lee Centurions. Uh, You were at Wigan Cronulla today, I believe, Paul. Yes, I was indeed, Brian. Yeah, great game. It was a great game. You know, funnily enough, I thought throughout, well, not, not the whole game, but for a lot of the game, the Cronulla forwards were actually stronger um, you know, than the Wigan forwards. And yet, Wigan's defensive effort nullified nearly all that. Yeah, it did. I uh, thought Wigan was fantastic defensively. They didn't have too many opportunities to, to post points, Wigan, but those that they did have, they, they was really clinical with and, and they took them opportunities. The first try, you know, magnificent effort from Berges, acrobatic, and then he, he has a walk-in for the second one. And they didn't have too many opportunities, but they took them, you know, with, with both hands and that put Cronulla under some pressure. I agree, I thought Cronulla's forwards was, you know, gaining metres, you know, relatively easy and then they just folded a little bit in, in the attacking third of, of Wiggins and, as I said, defensively, Wigan was fantastic. Well, I mean, it's normal for the Australians to call everyone else wingers, um, when in fact they winge more than anyone. However, today, there might have been a suggestion that um, if Cronulla wins a little bit about the officiating, that they had a case because those two well, t- non-tries were very, very close. How did you see them? Yeah, I thought I thought there was no excuse for the first one. Luke Lewis has got up above um, you know, the Wigan defence and put the ball down and the, and the wingers offside is, is, is a metre or two metres in front of the kicker and you know, that's a bit, it's pretty criminal from the wing. Eh? If he stays mm. onside, then there's an opportunity to contest for it anyway. Lewis scores anyway, but the fact that he's just straight offside, there's no real excuse for that winger there to the letter of the law. 
is involved is within the 10 metres and it's a penalty. I thought the second one, I thought it was a try me. I thought that if, if Burgess gets given his um, for Wigan, then I, uh, there's, there's no real difference between that the Cronulla one and the Wigan one for me. So I thought there was a little bit hard done to maybe, but... Um, as you said, it's not unusual for us to be on the wrong end of them and us whinging a little yes. bit uh, with officiating. So it's, it's, um, it balances itself out a little bit, I think. The Aussies will have a bit of a whinge today, but, you know, who cares? You know, when you look back at the game... Exactly. You know, when you look back at the game, often periods of play which don't register as very important at the time then become quite clearly crucial. And I thought the uh, two... Um, sets that they defended, Wigan defended on their own try line before going the length of the field to get 10-0 up were absolutely crucial. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, agree completely. Yeah, couldn't agree more that defensively they was very solid. They gifted Cronulla some opportunities and defended the line really well and then went down the other end and, and the sucker punch, they the, the put a try on the board themselves and and you could see that deflate Cronulla a little bit and, and increase the intensity from Wigan's point of view. I thought the same second half. I thought they invited Cronulla in towards the end of the first half and the beginning of the second half. But they held really firm and then scored just after the break. And that really broke the back of the Cronulla team. I thought that they tried to play catch-up against the clock then. And, and there was always going to make some errors off the back of it. And it was about them Wigan seeing the game out, which I thought they did expertly. You know, mm. they, they really... Saw the game out. I think, you know, Thomas Lullaby kicks a ball into touch on around about 70 minutes. He gets absolutely cleaned out by Matt Pryor, the front row from Cronulla. And I think he'll take that every day of the week if he puts his teams in good positions. I thought they saw the game out, you know, with, with some really smart game management. In our code, um, the coaching staff are not allowed to come on the field. Yeah. And therefore, what happens is, shouldn't happen, but it does, the water carriers um, turn out to be, you know... Uh, well, carriers of messages as well. Now, today, at some times, Colonel had two on, one of them was Steve Price. So, you know, is it, first of all, I don't know, I must admit, I don't know, is that legal? It's a difficult one. I obviously worked with Doncaster Knights in Rugby Union, so I was on the sideline with Clive Griffiths, and that's torture at times because Clive's messages are coming on and you're trying to get them onto the players, so you're trying to pass them to the wingers, and it's easier if you've got somebody that can run them. Um... At the level of Super League, we get told there's only the physio allowed on. It'd help if we had an ex-player who's a physio who knows a little bit about rugby league um, to run some messages so he knows what so he's So basically, they're not allowed to do this, are they, really? No, not, no, listen, to the letter of the law, no. The, the trainers are allowed on for three players to make substitutions when you're in, in possession of the ball. You know, And I noticed it too, the Cronulla... The Cronulla um, guy, Steve Price, who you're talking about, behind the Cronulla attack three, four players at a time and... You know, I, I I think it's kind of a weak mentality myself. I think mm. that if you do your work during the week as a coaching staff, then you don't really need to educate the players again on the field. Unless there's an absolute change to the way you want to play and attack, then you know you should have done the work during the week to to allow your players to go out there and make some decisions. And ultimately, Brian, that's what they're paid for. They're paid but to yes. make decisions under under the most extreme of pressures. So. Um, if you have to keep telling them what to do, then then for me, you've probably not done what you need to be doing all week. Well, um, Wigan were the second side uh, to win in, in five years because Warrington won the, you know, they, well, I thought that they beat Brisbane Broncos, not easily, but with with comfort, you know, four, yeah, I thought, yeah, four I tries. Yeah, I thought it was easier than nine points, suggests. Um, I think I think you probably allude into that. I think the, the, beat, the beat Brisbane more convincingly and it flattered the 
flattered the Brisbane Broncos the score and I thought the fire into them was aggressive and in, in the contact and there was intense and, and Brisbane had no answer. At 20 points to nil, you're rarely going to score four tries against a team in such a, a big game. It's, it'd be unlikely that any team you know, from the NRL would have, have posted more than 20 points against against Warrington, you know, the previous night and I thought there was full value for their win. It adds a little bit of credibility too to what, what has been a dismal few years for the English Super League over the NRL clubs. Um, so it adds a little bit of international credibility to us and, and maybe, you know, more teams would be keen to come over this time of year to play, you know, more than just two games over this weekend. It really does sort of give the sport a bit more of, of a spotlight. What do you think it's done uh, from an England perspective when they go you know, into their domestic, well, their domestic international competition. Is that is a form of the players and the fact that these wins have come over teams from the strongest league in the world? Uh, has that, you know, given them a fillip that they need? Well, I, I think the more players that go down to the NRL understand the intensity of that competition, and there's quite a number down there. Obviously, the Bergies brothers stand out for a start, and then Mike Cooper, who played for Warrant in the previous night, spent two years at, at St George of the Warren Dragons, who are particularly good in the NRL competition. They've finished outside the top eight, of, you know, for the last couple of years. But he's come back a better player and understands the intensity week in, week out. And we can compete. You know, we just got to compete more regular. Um, we've got to get more intense games over here. And then World Club games are, are, are certainly going to go a long way to help in front mm. of, again, the England coach, Wayne Bennett, who coached the Brisbane Broncos. So you'll have seen firsthand what some of the Warrington players are about. I think they stayed around as well, the coaching staff at Brisbane, to have a look at today's game. So you'll have seen some more English talent there. And I only think it can be good for the sport and, and good for England rugby league. Paul, it's Gavin Mayers here. Hello there. Hi, yeah, yep. yeah. Just, just in terms of your own season with Lee, how things, yep. you, how you think the the season will will turn out having come up. Yeah, we was we was embarrassed week one. In all honesty, we had a really tough video uh, having lost at Castleford. We were thirty two nil down before we even started playing. We obviously got back a little bit in in the second half. We lost the second half eighteen sixteen at Castleford, but the damage was done first half, and the players learnt a really harsh lesson. Those that haven't been in the top league before learnt a really harsh lesson about how difficult it can be if you don't, you know, get a good start into in, in any Super League game. So you know, we was in we was in for a tough video the weekend before we played Leeds and. We improved steadily during the week and thought we had our chances to win the game at the weekend against Leeds Rhinos, but you know, we didn't take them. And ultimately, um, if you don't just don't hit your targets in Super League, which we've set ourselves, we just miss out. So, you know, we just missed out on five or six sort of team targets against Leeds Rhinos by two or three percent and then two or three percent will get you over the line and, and ultimately that's what the team and the players are learning about the top division. So we expect to to back it up next weekend against St Helens, it gets no easier for us. We play St Helens who beat Leeds round one, and then we play the the world champions Wigan the week after. So you know we've got to be very very good to compete, and we understand that. I expect us to to get better. I expect us to back it up. Um, I don't think many other people expect us to, but uh, we'll create our own little bubble and we'll have a real go this weekend against St Helens. We need a a win sooner rather than later from from our point of view at Lee. Well, Paul, thanks for chatting to us uh, tonight and good luck with the rest of the season. As you say, it's going to be difficult, but um, may may any fortune that you you need go your way. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Cheers. We're going to now focus on Super Rugby, which is about to start. And what we will be doing is going round each of the countries to get a journalist from 
each of the um, contestants because that gives us a special perspective. Tonight it's the turn of Alex Brune, the Australian rugby writer. Good evening or good morning to you, Alex. Good evening here. Good to, good to speak to you again, Brian. We first actually, we didn't want to start with this, but um, it's just happened a, a very sad death at the age of 37 of Dan Vickerman. Um, played over here with Saints, went to Cambridge to, after his uh, retirement from rugby. Um, but a, a lot of tests um, for the Wallabies, a very tragic occurrence. How, um, what will you assess his contribution to be? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy uh, with Dan. Um, to be honest, I, I can't tell you uh, what's, what's, what's occurred. It, it does seem very sudden. Uh, with other other people, we'd heard that there was an illness, etc. but this seemed to have either been kept very quiet or, or was very sudden. I mean, he was 37. He was a, a tower of a man. I mean, he was a true gentleman at rugby for anybody who met Dan. He was very well-spoken, very intelligent uh, university graduate, and... You know, a gentle giant, and it's an, it's an absolute tragedy. All Australian rugby community is, is deeply in mourning tonight. Well, let's um, turn to the Super Rugby itself. Is there any prospect that New Zealand will not dominate again this year? Uh, Brian, I, I wish I could say to you that there is. Uh, there is, but there probably really isn't. The, the New Zealand teams are so strong um, and just so well organised. They've got a lot of the best players and they utilise them the best. They have very well organised squads. But I mean, I should talk about the Australian teams. I think the most exciting team probably this year in Australian rugby is the Reds, uh, the Queensland Reds. They've got a new coach, Nick Styles, who had a fantastic success in the Australian Rugby Championship, which is a new domestic competition in Australia. And uh, Nick Nick has taken over at the Reds, and they've got four really exciting new signings. Stephen Moore, the Wallabies captain, who started off his career in Queensland, has come back to Queensland. George Smith, unbelievable, but George is... Well, you would know, of course, you would have seen him yeah. playing in, in England recently. George is back after a number of years out of Australian rugby, and he's come back and, and slotting into the back row, which is great. Clay Cooper's come back from Toulon as well. And also Scott Higginbotham is back from Japan. So they've got four new signings, really. Um, I mean, they all might be old former Reds players, but they're all back. And it's, it's really, really exciting for the Reds. And Nick Styles is a tremendous young coach, had a, a lot of success at the Australian Rugby Championship. And for Australian rugby to be strong, the Reds have to be strong. And they've been very poor since you and McKenzie left. So fantastic to see that hopefully the Reds will be better this year. Alex, Gavin Mayer is here. Hey, Gavin, how are you? Very well, Alex. Um, just just reading today a bit of speculation that um, there may be a threat for one of the Australian sides to be axed um, if there's going to reduce the tournament by two two sides. Have you any insight into that? And, and would that, will that add an extra spice to the performance of the Australian sides um, this season? Well, there is. There's a lot of speculation that the, the force are going to be the team that's going to be dropped. I mean, I quite like the conference system that runs in Super Rugby. I think it's quite a good idea. I think it works well. But supposedly there's a lot of angst against it in, in Australia and, and throughout the, the Super Rugby. Um, so the talk is that the force, who have never really performed, have yeah. never, uh, you know, never made a semi-final in all their years, there's talk that they will be dropped. But they've got an exciting new, new situation over there now, too. A young coach, Dave Vessels. Um, his nickname is Blood Vessels, uh, as, as you can understand. Um, good, good, good Aussie humour there. Um, uh, and he, uh, he was the assistant coach uh, at the Force. You know, he's he's got a, a bit of an energy there. They've got an exciting new signing, 
Tafa Palotano uh, now has, has joined them. From He's come across from the Waratahs, and Tafa's joined them at, at Hooker. So they've got a, a good, experienced player. He's ready to captain, too. He was ready to lead. So he'll be captaining the team. He'll be leading them at Hooker. And Tafa's a great, a great young guy who's still got a lot to give, I think, to, to Australian rugby. So he'll get them fired up. And, and they know that their, their history is on the line, their future is on the line. So the force really have to produce this year because... The poor old Perth fans, I mean, they're just sick and tired of watching the team lose every year. Yeah. And, you know, there's been lots of false dawns over there. So the fans have been pretty loyal, but this is almost really, this is the force's last chance. And maybe, just maybe, you know, a, a young coach all fired up, a bit of experience back in the pack, maybe they might produce this year. Let's hope so. Well, let's turn to the Waratahs, who, well, to be honest, had a, a season to forget last season. They've had significant departures which might make a big difference to them. But they've still got players, key players like Israel Falau, Hooper, Foley. How much more pressure has come onto their shoulders and can they cope with with the departures? Yeah, listen, it's going to be interesting with the Waratahs. Um, you know, they, they do, of course, as you say, they've still got some great players. But Daryl Gibson, as a coach, is, is still a little unproven. He's only coming into his second year now. And you look at their squad and, and, you know, they've got some experience. But, I mean, Bernard Foley probably hasn't, again, reached the heights that he had at the World Cup. Michael Hooper maybe was a little up and down last year, but certainly finished the year very strongly. And Israel also, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Israel carrying some injuries um, and not playing at 100%. But he's had a whole, you know, he's had a couple of months off now, so hopefully he'll be back to his very best. But but he'll need to be. You know, the, the Waratahs are... They just don't have that venom about them in the pack, which they used to have. I mean, that was the fear with the Waratahs, that they were just going to bash you up front. And when they did, they had some speedy backs that could capitalise on it. Also, Nick Phipps is very, very important in terms of scrum half. He's a bit up and down as well, too. So they're a bit of an unknown quantity, really, this year, the Waratahs. And you would expect them to start as, as, as a possible you know, semi-finalists, but they're going to need to, to get it together early in the season because the way Super Rugby is, if you lose your first two or three or even lose, say, three or four out of your first five, mm. it's very, very hard to recover from that. And, and they need to start well. They had a good win on the weekend in a trial match. They looked pretty impressive. But, you know, uh, the Waratahs, it's, it's hard to say, and it'd be great to see them reproducing what they've had. But... You've got to remember when the Waratahs won Super Rugby, they had a young guy called Kurtley Beal, who was a big, big part of that. And he's one of the big departures you know, that, that the Tars have lost over the last couple of years. And Alex, just in terms of the, the finances of the Australian Rugby Union, just how important is this tournament um, for the unions, for the, you know, I'm just reading about Queensland maybe being in a bit of financial trouble. Just Can you just give us an insight into how valuable commercially, in terms of prize money, how, how it can be, uh, the impact it can have? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's the TV rights that are the big thing, and that they come through from Fox Sports, uh, you know, in Australia. And Bill Pulver, of course, you know, comes from a very uh, financial background. He's come from a rugby background as, as well, but I don't think the the, the rugby, the, sorry, the financial situation of the Australian rugby is as bad as it was a year or two years ago when there was serious talk of insolvency in Australian yeah. rugby, and that wasn't just hearsay; that was a real possibility. So certainly the coppers are a little bit better filled at the moment, and uh, you know the Australian uh, women's sevens team winning the gold at the, in Rio that was a big, big thing, 
and there's been a massive boost in women's rugby, more sponsors also coming into rugby due to that gold medal that was won. And also those girls are just great at selling the game. They're great at promoting the game. They're really, really good face for Australian rugby. So, I mean, it's it's not, you know, it's not as, as good as it needs to be, but it's 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 not as bad. In, in terms of the money that, that the Super Rugby brings in, it brings in a little bit, but... The problem is the crowds have been way, way mm. down in Australia, rugby, especially in Queensland, where the, the Reds, you know, used to get 35,000, 40,000 to a match. They're now probably lucky to get 20,000. So that's a big, big blow every weekend that you, you're losing out a massive amount. And I think Australian rugby sporting fans are very tough. They want success, and you've got to be able to be successful to, to, to get the crowds in and get the money behind you. And the, as I said, the Australian women's sevens team have brought back a little bit, but we also need success at provincial level to really get Australian rugby back in a strong position. It's interesting here from Gary Gold was, uh, and was talking about possibly you know, the clubs, the, the, the six best clubs in Europe um, forming a sort of competition with the six best clubs in South Africa. Uh, there's that sort of constant threat, I guess, to the whole tournament to see um, if there's any little sort of problems with the, the structure and the format of the tournament? Well, yeah, that, that one I mean, that one's a, a, a rumour that never seems to go away, doesn't it? It always comes up every year or two and there's a lot of talk about it. And I guess it would be for, for the broadcasters over in Europe who really have the money, I guess it would be an, an interesting proposition. Uh, I, as I said, I don't mind the conference situ- situation. And you've got to remember one of the most successful sporting competitions in the world is the National Football League in America, of course, and the NFL, of course, has a conference system. So I don't think it's a bad idea. It's just something that I think sporting fans in the, in the Southern Hemisphere just they find it very odd to, to understand. And the fact that this year New South Wales will only play Queensland once in Super Rugby is a very, very odd thing for sports fans down there. So they're talking, they've got a crazy idea down here that they're going to play a sort of rugby state of origin match. So, you know, whereas you're going to play not for the team you're, you're contracted to, but the, the place where you were born, which would see Israel Folau play for Queensland. Um, and, and a little sort of odd in, 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 idiosyncrasies like that. But, I mean, that's boring, of course, from rugby league, where that is a fantastic and very, very successful concept. But little odd things like that, and you're sort of thinking that's going to be in the middle of the super rugby season. Is that something that's really good for rugby? And does that just take away from super rugby? Does it get everybody even more confused to see Israel Folau suddenly running around at a Queensland jersey? And, and, and who's really going to enjoy that? So, you know, these ideas come up, such as a you know, South African English competition or, you know, these state of origin in, in rugby. But I personally, myself, I quite like the conference system. I don't really think they've given it enough chance to succeed. And I think that partly the problem is Sansa. Um, Andy Marinos, ex-Springbok, who now runs Sansa, or is the CEO of Sansa, out of, uh, out of and based in Sydney, and good old Greg Thomas is their <laughs> media manager these days at Sansa. Uh, I, I think they're panicking a little bit. And to already talk about doing away with the conference system after just one year, I think it's very, very premature. But that, that's the problem down in, in Australian rugby and Southern Hemisphere rugby, except in New Zealand, of course. You know, there's so much talk, there's so much speculation outside the game. People find it hard to get excited about things because there's always doom and gloom and talk about this possibility or this changing. So people find it hard to get into things. Well, I mean, one thing is certain. There will be a lot of tries. 
because Super Rugby features that. It's, I, I, I got my opinion wrong about uh, about the way that was played. I'm happy to admit that, uh, and we'll look forward to it as you will. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure, Brian. Thank Thanks, you. Alex. Well, now it's time for a the first of several features uh, to this podcast: the team behind the team. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions, supporting the team behind the team. Well, everyone knows it's a Lions year and we're building up to the British and Irish Lions Tour to New Zealand. We're going to be bringing you the full story of those who make the tour possible, the team behind the team. The coaches, the tour manager, operations team, the medical staff, fans, sponsors, players, legal officers, performance analysts and so on. Um, before we even get to the team and the coaching staff, and you could, well, a lot of people do ask, why do they need all these people? Well, in the coming weeks, we'll be explaining why the team behind the team is vital to support the squad's efforts, and all this is supported by QBE Insurance. Uh, first up, we're going to be talking to the communications manager, Dave Barton, and I caught up with Dave earlier in the week to find out a little more about his role and how he got involved with this tour. So I was in place last January, so I've been in place just over a year, Brian. Um, seems to have gone pretty quickly, but uh, the clock is ticking as we, uh, as we look down towards the tour. Many people will think your job is simply media-faced, but there are more aspects to it than that. Can you explain the wider remit you've got? The Lions rely massively on sponsorship um, because we haven't got a stadium, we haven't got a a kind of home ground like Twickenham, which, uh, you know, you fill with 80,000 people. So in order to fund Lions Tours, um, the commercial and the sponsorship element is, is really key. So my role within that is obviously sponsors, they want exposure for, for their brands. Um, so it's up to us and it's part of my role uh, is to deliver that exposure, whether it's through appearances with Warren or, or the squad. Um, and a lot of that is media-facing um, because they get that exposure and they get that kind of visibility through through images or through media interviews or through through video. So part of that is it's managing some of the, the, the sponsor elements to the role. Uh, there's other things, and, you know, you will have seen this this year, the, the Lions, Leaning the Lions dinner series. Uh, we partnered with charities. So there's a cancer charity, Valinda in Wales, uh, Great Ormond Street in London, uh, Temple Street in Dublin and uh, Cure Parkinson's Trust in Edinburgh, uh, and part of my role is to ensure that you know we, we do the best things for for the Lions and for the charities in terms of promoting. So there's lots of different elements. You're right; it's not just about kind of it, traditional media like interviews or uh, or television or or newspapers. Now you're the conduit between the management of players and the wider media. So how do you decide who gets what, when, and where? It is an interesting challenge, and um, you know, you, you're talking about, as you know, you're, you're bringing together coaches and players from, from four nations and they've got different approaches and experiences of the media. But also you've got media from four nations who all have different experiences of, of how their you know, national team does media. Uh, and then when we get to New Zealand, you've obviously got the, the New Zealand press. Uh, and bizarrely, on, on the 2013 tour, when I was the media manager, we had a, a couple of French journalists who... You know what the French are like in terms of their their rugby coverage. So there's, it, it's it, it's quite a, a jigsaw uh, piecing it all together, um, and not least when you've got a, a time difference of 
between 11 and 13 hours on the other side of the world. Um, so, you know, it's quite a logistical exercise to, to piece it all together. I suppose what you, what you have to do, Brian, is, is try and treat everyone fairly uh, as best you can um, and make sure you give, you know, enough enough to each of the, the, the traveling press from each nation. And it, it's a changing environment, isn't it? You know, we, we're doing a radio interview now, but uh, there's a lot of, you know, whether it's Facebook Live, whether it's Twitter or Instagram, uh, a lot of press who may have traditionally done just written newspaper article and now having to go into that brand new world of, uh, of digital and social media. How many media people will be accredited? The reports from... Uh, from my colleagues at New Zealand Rugby are that there's probably uh, about 150 to 200 people who have applied for accreditation. So, you know, it's going to be a sizable media contingent. Um, and, and the press, you know, they love the Lions tours. It's something different, you know. They go to, to games week in, week out, uh, and the Six Nations comes around, and it's a great tournament every year, and we've just seen a couple of fantastic rounds. But... Uh, when it comes to Lions tours, media-wise, everybody wants to be on it. You've got all sorts of media there. They have a job to do. They have to file copy you know, or footage, and they've got to do that every day. And in order to do that, they need stories. You need to provide something of, of interest for them to record, or they will go and make things up, or they will go back to past things, and they will put a different slant on them. So how do you provide for that, and how do you deal with people who get out of line? Part of it is relationships, so you know you you want a, a strong relationship, and you want to be able to be able to have a robust conversation with with, with the media and say, look, this is you know this is out of order. Um, there, I suppose there are final recourses in terms of kind of not allowing them to, to certain events, but you probably want to get to that point. You want to have a, a respectful relationship, and uh, I think coming back to your earlier, point, um, it's about giving them enough content and enough interesting interviews and enough access um, without compromising the performance of the team uh, so that actually they don't have to look elsewhere for stories um, and I think you know if your players are engaging and if uh, if you do things in the right way where you don't burden the players with with too many commitments but you provide the right access then I think um, the traveling media will will respect that and will you know will take what you give them without having to kind of sort of dig dig around to um, beyond that. Well, I, I mean, I saw that firsthand in the, the World Cup where the Welsh uh, press and media um, uh, presence was very good. Um, they gave stories, human interest stories to, to journalists who could then go away and you know, just get them down on paper and go and play golf. <laughs> and in contrast, but I think it was part, partly due to Martin Johnson's dislike of, of press conferences and generally you know, having to do them. You know, England were really... They, they gave an impression that actually this was a real chore. And a couple of times, you know, John, when he thought the question was, a, you know, a bit daft, he made it quite plain. And, um, you know, I know you could say, well, he's got a right to do that if it's a daft question. But my point was, actually, if you belittle someone in a press conference, they're going to remember that. And they're going to carry on writing. And at some point, you might need, you know, not necessarily a favour, but, you, you know, you might need the benefit of the doubt. Um, how important do you believe it is for you to get, you know, the relationship with the re media um, correct and onside? My principle is that media-wise, that they're they're travelling right around the world. They're, they're, 
obviously their organisations are spending a lot of money. They give Lions the visibility and and, and you know, the promotion that uh, you know, all teams need. Um, and I think you know it, you're right. It is about respecting. We we know they have a job to do. Um, we know that you know if we don't provide them with some access, then it's a long day out in New Zealand without any kind of sort of uh, um, anything to write about. And um, I think when he gets to press conference time, um, you know, in the same way that you know you, you respect a, an opposition's culture, an opposition's team, then I think you, you need to give the media the, the right respect. Um, but it, it has to be two way. You know, they, you can't can't just be a one way street. You can't just kind of feed them feed. It's not a a never ending trough of of, of stories. Uh, it has to be a balance, and uh, mm-hmm. you'd hope that uh, there's that respect on both sides. Now. No one wants this to happen, but it does happen. Um, you know, players get into various spots, either disciplinary in terms of what they've done on the field or off the field, which is usually uh, juicier for the <laughs> press. Now, do you have a strategy in place for for these? A, a pre, uh, you know, a pre-planned one. Yes, I mean, we, we, there is a, uh, and, and it would be remiss of you know, any team, or any organisation or business not to have a. Um, a, a crisis management procedure, and, and within that, you have a crisis management, uh, crisis communications plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done a, you know, a big, you know, we've done a risk analysis, um, as as you would do. Um, and um, you know, in my previous role with England, um, you know, we had we had a a, a big risk um, analysis program. Um, I suppose you have to, you know, plan for. Well, every eventuality, if you can do, there are some things which which come right from left field and like jumping off ferries. Like yeah, listen, and and you don't expect those. Um, <laughs> and you know, I was there in, in 2011 with England, and um, there were a lot of things which which came at us, which you know you ultimately you can't prepare for. Now, you know, you learn from those experiences as uh, as a player learns from experiences on the pitch, and and you learn to go actually, while I can't. You know, anticipate everything that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, if it does happen, this is how you would deal deal with it, based on, you know, what you know what I've learned over the last kind of twenty odd years in communications and ten to fifteen years in the team environment. So, you have your statements, you have your positioning, um, and you have that ready. Um, mm-hmm. But really, it's about reacting and and doing the right thing when it happens, whether that's. Apologies if you're in the wrong. Whether it's a robust defence, if, if, if the allegations are untrue, um, you know it's sad to say to get to that point. But actually, uh, I think preparation and with, in communications uh, is really key. Well, I mean, from from my end, um, and having advised other people at other times, my thing would be just be dead straight. Tell it exactly as it is. If it's bad, it's bad. Um, you know, as you say, if there is a defence, be robust. But don't skirt around the edges, don't flannel things, don't give things that are ambiguous, because those are the areas in which, you know, the exploitation will be made by the media. That, that, that's the, the way in which they can justifiably take a different point of view without, uh, you know, inventing things. And I always think, if you are in trouble, you should just come out, put your hands up, um, and say, you know, as you say, apologise, it's being dealt with, being dealt with properly, and then you know we all move on because you only get one story. Then you don't get a whole load of things down the route where people can write three or four, or six or seven articles. Yeah, and I think um, 
you know, with this, actions speak louder than the words. So, um, you know, if a mistake is made, then I think you've got to tell the truth and, and you know, you, you tell it quickly to minimize the damage. Um, as you said, don't don't attempt to cover up. Um, as the, the you know the truth always outs, doesn't it? It does, yes. Um, and I think you know you've got to show a human face as well. Um, so things like you know well-worn phrases are just overplayed. I think you've got to and if 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 there's an issue and if you're in the wrong, you express that regret or concern. You do it early um, rather than delay because you know people see through facades and. Uh, and flannel, don't they? They do. Well, Dave, um, here's hoping that you have a relatively quiet time down in New right. Zealand. I'm, I'm sure that won't happen because things just online tours, there are all sorts of, uh, of things occur. But um, from my point of view, I hope I don't have to be calling you too often. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, I hope you're going there for six weeks and, and there's ten games and... Uh, um, I hope we can we can all focus on the rugby and, and talk about rugby. But um, you and I have been on on too many tours to know that uh, yes. it's uh, sometimes it's not always about <laughs> the eighty minutes. It's, it's uh, there's always stuff beyond that. But uh, let's hope it's uh, it's good stuff. Well, thanks to Dave Barton for sharing his story and how he fits into the team behind the team. Also, thanks to QBE Business Insurance who support not only this podcast but the team behind. The British and Irish Lions. QB are all about building the strongest partnerships, one team and collaboration across multiple countries to give businesses the confidence to achieve their ambitions. Next month we'll be hearing from another key member of the backroom squad and as of t- well, as the intensity and the excitement builds up to the actual tour of uh, New Zealand. Right, we come to the section which is titled Lions Watch. What this simply means is that you and I have a quick discussion about mm. who stood out, not who we... No one can tell who's going to yeah. be a starting 15 yeah. or where they're going to be. Um, but we try to explore who's caught the eye for you. Well, I think um, sort of two surprise selects, I would say. I, I think I mentioned earlier Elliot Daly for me mm-hmm. uh, with England. Two, two really strong performances, and I love his versatility, and that's something that could sway Warren Gatlin's mind when he's looking at a utility back this guy can play across the back line mm-hmm. he's got a massive left boot and he has shown great finishing pace and goal great kicker. positional play goal kicker um, so I think daily for me it's still an outside chance because the, you know, the back three is, is horrifically competitive but he is one player for me that I think if he has another if he finishes strongly that game in Dublin will be the superb finale This this could be his championship um, I suppose the other name, which again is a complete long shot, but I thought Ross Moriarty last weekend really stood out for me. I have no idea why he was taken out of, out of the I contest don't think so early. Else has apart from the Welsh management, yeah, but he was having such an impact in that game against a physical English pack. Um, you know, he's an outsider, but if we look at people who've caught the eye of the last two two weeks, Ross Moriarty was a name that you wouldn't have expected at the start of the championship. Let's just cover this point uh, briefly. The Lions captain. Now, everyone believes that their country should have more players in. You know, um, he's and, and people were talking about Rory Best and nailed on Alan Wynne-Jones nailed on. How do you see it? Well, Gatland. It will, it will come down to Gatland's test team. 
And this we won't know until the end of the championship. Uh, when he's got to make his mind up, I think of 19th of April, he will pick his test team first and he will see who are the national captains within that test team. For me, Alan Wynn, a lot of people talk about Alan Wynne-Jones. He's a phenomenal forward. He's got experience at captain the Lions. The got one a lot of competition against the him. One, the, the biggest weakness is not Alan Wynne-Jones, it's who he's up against mm. to play in the second row. And if you look at those second row combinations, one of one of Gatlin's other stipulations is, does he pick a captain for, in a position where there is so much composite, competition that it, it, it affects those who might be pushing for a place and also uh, gives that, the captain extra baggage to keep consistently proving his place. If you look at... If you look at the situation, I still have an inkling for Rory Best in terms of his experience. The the hooker position, he's up against Hartley. Jimmy George could end up as a test hooker, people say, but he's not even starting for England at the minute. For that reason, I just think the hooking position is least competition. The back row's phenomenally competitive. Best has a gravitas experience, and he he's not the to- the type of character if he's dropped from the team because he's not good enough for the test side on form that it would affect him. He he, he would take that, and I, that's just just me. Just think, looking at who have we got, who are the personalities, and which positions they're in. Well, we'll uh, we'll find out in a few weeks. I was I my view is that yes, he will pick the team and then he'll look there I don't think he's got a, a a preconceived idea who definitely will be there I think that's happened in other years but I don't I don't think that's is one of them that's the end um, time flies Gav doesn't yes. it when you've got a lot to discuss <laughs> thank you very much for coming in pleasure Brian uh, you've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance thanks once again to my co-host Gavin Mayers for joining me in the studio this week and to our producer Abby Patterson Next week, my co-host will be Saracens and former Scotland lock, Jim Hamilton, who's always forthright, so that should be worth listening to. Remember, you can get in touch with us throughout the week via the hashtag FullContact. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us with a review. Good night.